So domestic marketplaces really, really differ by country, right? So in some countries in Europe, there's hardly an alternative to Amazon and eBay. You know, it's basically Amazon and eBay across most European countries. You know, eBay in a lot of countries, probably with, with the exception of the UK, has really fallen well behind Amazon. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Eva serves hundreds of private label seven figure sellers. To get a 15 day free trial, go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com ba.com forward slash e-v-n. Ladles and jealous beans, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers. And especially if you're trying to build a profitable business, hopefully we can help you today. Uh, we're talking to Paul Sonnefeld of uh, Merchant Spring. Merchant Spring's uh, mission is to bring together multi-channel e-commerce analytics to get all the numbers in one place so that you get an overview of what's going on. So, Paul, welcome back to the show. Great to be here again, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for coming on again. So today we're going to talk about European e-commerce marketplaces. Now, one of the first things that people often think is, oh, it's not really worth splitting your focus between too many different things. There's lots of micro marketplaces in Europe. It's all very cute, but you know, everyone should be really just focused on Amazon. Do you think this is true? I think there are some disadvantages to it. I think those that just focus on miss out, they miss out on the ability to diversify their business, you know, it's the good old saying, right? Don't put your all of your eggs in one basket. And you could be, you know, I get it. You're trading across what's easily now, you know, seven or eight different Amazon countries in Europe. It's still one basket, right? It's a really big basket and it's going to do well for you, but it's one basket. So, or one egg, I should say. My analogies are breaking down. The, the thing that's really interesting is there's some great domestic marketplaces that are what I would say curated. Right? So what does it mean by that? Yes, they are smaller. They're not as big. You look at SimilarWeb or you know, Amazon's here and they're here. But what a lot of people completely don't realize is the amount of competition in these marketplaces is far less, not just in absolute terms, but in proportionality, right? So you know, I love to talk about fish food, right? But if there's like two big ponds, there's the Amazon pond and there's, say, a local marketplace pond and you are a fish, Guess what? There's more fish food to go around in a lot of these smaller marketplaces, right? Just because of the ratio of, you know, traffic or buyers versus competitors uh, versus sellers, that metric in many instances is just a, a lot more favorable. So yeah. I'm not saying switch everything from one to another, but actually you'd be pleasantly surprised that you can drive some really good sales out of that. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> I like the fish food analogy, but the ratio of buyers to sellers is really, really, really important, I think. And here's why, because everyone obsesses about revenue and they look at a Amazon.com, the biggest marketplace in the world, and they go, oh, well, look, we can make, you know, a million dollars a month selling iPhone cases or something, to which my response is no, that's a million dollars in revenue. And if a bunch of Chinese factories are selling directly, they'll probably make a loss on every single unit. And if you want to compete with them, you're going to make an even bigger loss on every unit, which simply means you have to have vast amounts of money in the bank. 
and then you're going to lose it all. So it's a bit like investing in Uber, if I may say so. But, you know, it's all very well. They got great market penetration, but they haven't made a profit ever. And I personally wouldn't necessarily want to invest. Like, is it a startup seven years in? I'm not sure. So whereas I've got a client who's selling on Bol who who was selling stuff that if you sold it on Amazon.com, co.uk would have made me sweat because it's so competitive and so China's dominated and he was absolutely kidding it last Q4 he ended up going it was a 35 dollar product or 35 euros that he was selling for a decent profit he ended up selling at about 70 euros a pot because he was running out of inventory and I said to him like maximize for profit and it was just an example of just how extraordinarily easy it is to make profit when there's just less competition. So I'm, I'm totally sold on this. And I'm glad you think the same because I just think it's a total missed opportunity. So talking of which, let's get some juice. So that was bold.com. So what are the other most effective marketplaces for your users in terms of profit? Let's use that metric. Which are the most profitable ones? For yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, just to make a more generic point around this, you know, very few marketplaces have the amount of fee structures that, that Amazon has, right? Like, so I think, you know, as part of our profitability module, we, we collect like 74 different fees. You know, Amazon charges you a lot, right? Particularly your FBA, you, you're pretty much giving 15% away in referral fees and 15% in, in back, back fees, you know, and the like, depending on the price of your product. So, you know, you're, you're especially giving away 30% and yet advertising on top of that, you can be talking 40, right? So it's a fair chunk of your revenue. You know, a lot of other marketplaces will have commissions in place, but very few other fees, right? So even if you price it at the same point, what flows down to the bottom line is a lot more in a lot of cases. And then the second point, Michael, it's about that that revenue realization, right? Ability to price a little bit higher. Just to make one more point, and I'm completely off track, but I wanted to say, don't always assume that the same customer shopping on the, on, on the same marketplace, right? So, I mean, we've got this example here in Australia where eBay and Amazon basically compete for the same audience. You know, and you look at all the complex, you know, similar web analysis, you'll find that a customer that shops on Amazon is probably also likely to have a look at eBay and the like. But then you've got other marketplaces over here, you know, a lot of you will know about these, but like the Iconic or Catch, local marketplaces, they attract a completely different audience. So then the question becomes, you know, why you should be selling on say, Catch and Amazon, well, guess what? If you're not on Catch, you will not be talking to that audience. They are not shopping at Amazon. At least they're not yet. You know, Amazon is not developed yet. So it's also about this incrementality of audience reach. Now, sorry, let me now actually answer your question. Uh, Apologies. So domestic marketplaces really, really differ by country, right? So in some countries in Europe, there's hardly an alternative to Amazon and eBay, you know, it's basically Amazon and eBay across most European countries. You know, eBay in a lot of countries, probably with with the exception of the UK, has really fallen well behind Amazon. You know, it's really, you know, it doesn't even come into the consideration set a lot of time anymore. And I'm probably not being completely fair, but it's a distant second for a lot of marketplaces. In the UK, it's still quite sizable relative to Amazon, but not as big. But then when you get to, you know, if, if you were to say, okay, if you're in Holland, what's the next marketplace? Well, clearly it's ball.com. We've spoken about that. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, ball.com has been around for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. They've had an enormous advantage in terms of uh, track record and, you know, user base and the like. So ball is a great example. If you're selling the Netherlands, in France, you know, the one that's super popular at the moment is C-Discount, particularly with international sellers. And I know the guys at C-Discount are working really hard to attract international sellers. You know, great creative marketplace and does really well. But France seems to be uh, 
It's probably because of the Miracle platform was you know, originally born out of France. There seems to be a lot of marketplaces there. So you've got every, everyone from Carrefour to Decathlon to, you know, obviously FNAC is a really big one and, and Darty as well. You know, and there's probably the list goes on and on and on. So lots of different options. You know, just to sort of add a bit of a flavor to that is because a lot of them share the same marketplace platform. Actually, the, the complexity cost is actually substantially less because of the way you connect to these platforms and you manage them, they all quite similar. So you actually, there's some time saving, some, some synergy. In terms of the rest of Europe, you know, Germany is kind of, you know, separate again, obviously Amazon Germany is absolutely massive and sort of the go-to place now followed after Brexit uh, for a lot of sellers going into uh, to Europe. And obviously you've got, you know, Kaufland now uh, who's bought Otto. So that's, you know, uh, uh, gearing up. I think they're sort of lost a little bit of momentum, but I think they were sort of going to come back out there. Um, and then in Eastern Europe, you've got uh, Allegro, obviously out of Poland, you know, very big, very prominent trades across a number of countries there, certainly worth looking at. Now, it is important to know that some of these, you will need to have pretty good local language um, skills, right? Particularly when it comes to listing optimization and customer service and the like. So it'd be good to partner up with, with a local partner on that. Now, in terms of Southern Europe, there's actually not that much. You know, you have ePrice in Italy. You have sort of Carrefour, Spain, and a couple of, you know, I guess, category-specific marketplaces. But in Southern, uh, Southern Europe, it's predominantly Amazon and eBay that rule the roost, right? If you're, covered, if you're on both of those, then, you know, you're covering most of your audience in Spain. And I think that my next question would really be around, well, what category are you in, right? So if you're into fashion, you know, uh, obviously across Europe, Zalando is a great, uh, great offer. If you're doing home and garden, then you know Vida Excel or something like that might might make sense. But you're really getting into the more niche, category focused marketplaces beyond that. Yeah, and by the way, there's nothing particularly again to the point of the big numbers. It's particularly important whether a marketplace is big or not for everybody. If it happens to be big for your particular category, and to the point we'd be making, and I think this is like the theme of the podcast. If you are not competing, amazing competition. If you have amazing, if you've been fighting in Amazon.com and you've honed your image marketing and your your messaging. Now, of course, you can't just bring American style marketing to Germany specifically, quite famously, they don't like that kind of thing. But nevertheless, if you've got incredible image marketing and everyone else has got one boring image on white, you could quite easily come into a, a sort of fashion specific category in a um, marketplace, I should say, and and do really, really well. So I think it's the idea of specific marketplaces is interesting. And also, I presume that you would see that the pricing and profit levels are quite different because you've got people who are there specifically to shop for fashion i mean what's the, the what are the tr patterns or the trends that you see from your data in, uh, across those kinds of very specific categories specific marketplaces yeah a lot of times people will it would you know to my point about audience it, it can attract a very different audience you know i'll give you i guess an extreme example which is the asos marketplace you know out of the uk you know their marketplace is very much focused on you know smaller vendors boutiques it's almost like the etsy of, of fashion right and as a result they're attracting a really young audience you know i was going to say millennials but probably even younger than that much more fashion conscious much more looking for something special in you. you know clearly they, they've got the, the buy buy now pay later sort of arrangements and they the price becomes less of a factor you know they they shop more on uh uniqueness and much more about return policy you know return policy is a big deal you know the ability to buy a whole lot of full price uh, you know we see this in australia a lot with the iconic you know the ability to order um seven garments at full price get them delivered and then you know i choose four and i return the other three 
free of charge. So, you know, completely different business model. Now, it allows you to charge, obviously, much higher prices. You know, typically we see, you know, sort of a, a price premium of, say, the iconic of about 20% versus sort of some of the larger market, which is great. But, you know, it is to cover a cost of service as well. So, obviously, the returns are also, you know, 20, you know, in the order of 20%, you know, and if you're running, if you're an Amazon seller and you're running returns at 20%, you'll probably be out of business, right? So, you know, there's a, it's not just that all of that incremental price flows straight to the bottom line, you know, some of that is eaten up by differences in the operating world. Yeah, it's interesting. So in other words, you've got a different sort of profit structure. So your gross profit is going to be higher, but your operating costs, your overhead for that particular marketplace is going to be higher as well. So yeah, I guess that's very interesting that nonetheless, that if you get it right, and if you understand that business model and other people in coming in don't understand the business model, quite likely you're going to have people coming in trying to just replicate the business model that they have at Amazon, come in, do that once or twice, get burnt and then leave, which is sort of one of those little barriers to entry that is, I'm going to put it, it's a sort of marketplace culture, culture not for the consumer, but for the, for the you know, the sellers, I guess. So they're used to the operation sort of rhythms and, and numbers and that sort of stuff. It's quite interesting. I like that a lot. And also, the, yeah, there's, there's always a trade-off, isn't there? We talked about this before. I suppose the trade-off of high return rate sounds quite scary to me, but some people are in categories where they're used to that on Amazon anyway. I mean, for example, <clears throat> I know that Amazon Germany in the clothing categories that the return rates can be up to 40%, which is kind of scary. What have you got any knowledge about since we're talking about clothing as category? What, what's your view of, you know, of any patterns you see in that one, for example? Yeah, look, very, very similar. Like 40% is is not uncommon. I, I find it a little bit scary, I, I, you know, I, when it comes to fashion and apparel. And of course, it depends a little bit on, you know, you're talking about accessories or you're talking shoes, you know, that, that can be a really big difference. You know, 20% is acceptable. I get, I get a bit worried about 40%. Um, 40% is possible, but as long as you bake it into your business model, you plan for that, right? And as long as you've got the returns process in place. I mean, in some of the, some of the marketplaces have got really slick, processes you know and you have to particularly if you're in the fashion game but yeah as you said before it's it's a different business it's a different way of doing business and you know a lot of them will still charge and it's a bit bit old school but some of them still charge that good old restocking fee right as a way of just recovering a little bit of extra margin just to make the PL work yeah charge a restocking fee so you that would be the marketplace that charges that to you as the merchant or would you charge that onto the customer or how does that work a lot of times the merchant will back onto the customer, you know, and then that's part of the, you know, the kind of the, the agreement as part of the returns policy that is that is approved by the marketplace. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that does sound like a different business model. Again, it's it sort of makes me, you know, break into a bit of a sweat, <laughs> that sort of return level. But nevertheless, it, it could really work. And if you're in apparel and fashion generally, I guess, you know, in any marketplace, you've got to get your head around that sort of returns and, and have a way of dealing with it. And as you say, getting the economics to work. More exotic marketplaces out there as well. I know we talked, we're talking about Europe, just to sort of touch on what's out there. I know in Southeast Asia, obviously, you're not a million miles away from that in, in, in Australia, yeah. relative to Europe. Anyway, you've got a bit more of a sense of it what's going on there is there any things that are worth investigating yeah south southeast asia in particular i mean everyone knows about china right and the uh, females and all that and that's a whole different value game I, you know there, there there are people far better qualified to talk about that part so i'll skip over that but southeast asia is really interesting because it's it's there's a, there's a massive population boom going on there right and amazon is not really present you know if you think about where amazon is in, in asia they sort of have this little beachhead in Singapore, 
You know, every numbers that I look at doesn't look to be going that great. Uh, and I'm sure Amazon will argue otherwise. Other than that, obviously, they're in Australia. They've just opened in New Zealand, or at least, you know, from a domain name point of view. And then obviously, massive business in India. But India is not, it's completely separate from Southeast Asia. So what is really there in Southeast Asia is you've got two big players and some really big domestic players. So you have Lazada and Shopee, not to be confused with Shopify, Shopee. Um, Lazada has been around uh, the longest. They operate in, in most countries in Southeast Asia. So, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, and the like. And Shopee is pretty similar. Lazada is a copycat of, of, of Amazon. When you when you use the platform, you go, oh, this kind of looks familiar. You know, the interface is the same. They've got this concept. They've got, they got FBL fulfilled by Lazada. You know, it, it kind of everything sort of, it's like a parallel universe. Right. So in a way for Amazon sellers, it's 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 pretty good in that sense. And it was started you know, by Rocket Internet, I think many years ago, probably 20 years ago now, 15 years ago, to just take the Amazon business model, copy someone else's business model that we know is going to be successful and, and put in Southeast Asia. So uh, that's working, working pretty well. Um, competition is a bit different there. So uh, Lazada doesn't have the sophisticated brand protections and the like in play that, that Amazon has. Right. So particularly, you know, sort of brand owners, FBA sellers that are brand owners finding it a little bit harder to make things work on Lazada because, because the nature of the competition and the volume of sellers that are out there, the, the price competition is the same for Shopee, by the way, is pretty competitive. It's, Shopee is pretty similar, same sort of geographical reach, same sort of country set. In some countries, Shopee is number one, Lazada is number one, number two, you know, and then it flips around. So they're always like one, two, two, one, one, two, depending on which country you look at. And being listed on both will give you really good breath uh, and coverage. And then, you know, within that, you have these domestic kind of behemoths. You know, the biggest one, obviously, Indonesia, for those, you know, obviously, Indonesia being one of the most populous countries in Southeast Asia and one of the fastest growing countries in Southeast Asia. You know, they have their number one marketplace is, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but Bulapalak, right, which is just a massive business. And if you look at the number of sellers there, it's, it's, it's crazy. Look, for an international seller, very hard to penetrate. You know, the percentage of international sellers versus domestic sellers on their marketplace is really, really low, like single digits. So certainly not a, not a place I'd say, you know, everyone go in there now, there's money to be made. It's going to be tough. It's very competitive. And local language is obviously challenging, but certainly one to watch, you know, as, as marketplaces evolve and mature in Southeast Asia. Yeah, interesting. It's one of those places where it probably helps if you've got some kind of family connections or, or business connections out there. So it happens Vietnam seems to be becoming very popular. There's a couple of guys I've spoken to recently. One, John Cavendish, very British uh, chap from London, North London, where I'm living actually. And But he's now in Vietnam and I think he's just married a Vietnamese lady. And there's a, another guy who I've spoken to who's not actually in the e-commerce space, but American kind of appointment setting, cold outreach kind of specialist. And he's also out there. So there seems to be a few people that attracted to the vibrant and and the interesting lifestyle and and so it feels to me like a bit specialist but obviously any Australians listening we do have quite a few Australian listeners that they have a lot more of a feel for I think and the connections to Southeast Asia apart from anything else I think a lot of Australians are sort of maybe whatever the correct term is now second generation you know Southeast Asians anyway right so there's big big connections probably family connections and just like in Britain there's a lot of British South Asians so if you want to do something in India we probably have the connections here it's one of those things isn't it that you need to kind of pick your fights but it's certainly very interesting if there's a growing population and I would say, I mean, how wealthy is the population, would you say, in terms of the consumer population relative to, say, Europe, for example? 
Yeah, yeah. Look, we did it. We did a quite a large study about a year ago. We looked at um, willingness to pay, both from a consumer point of view, as a way of how attractive are these markets. You know, is the, basically can you charge enough to actually, you know, put competition aside? Would would, would consumers really be willing to pay? The, the price that you want to get for your product so you can actually you know make money and and the answer varies right so you look at singapore malaysia you know willingness space pretty high you know or or gdp uh, per capita it is pretty high to sell things at a reasonable price but obviously when you get to indonesia vietnam you know thailand to some extent things become a lot harder right obviously you've got taiwan and and hong kong and that's you know uh, willing to pay, willingness to pay there is is not an issue in terms of size of the wallet and what people want to pay. But when you get to the so I guess the more developing parts of Southeast Asia, you know I think the economics that you used to let's say if your idea is to you know, let's say you know I've got this great product uh, that I'm selling in uh, in the US or in Europe and the economics is working for me and it's a good profit engine for me, you may struggle bringing all that product to some of those countries in Southeast Asia. You know la- local language issues aside. You may just find that the willingness to pay the price is not there, and therefore the economics can't stack, and you kind of have to go back to the drawing board in terms of how do you engineer a product that does work in those markets. Interesting, but I mean, I would say that, for example, Taiwan is got the population about the size of Australia, right? It's around the twenty million, twenty-two million mark, something like that. So that's actually not a small population of reasonably wealthy consumers to have. And also, if your products are made in China for as long as let's you know, fingers crossed, China and Taiwan aren't actually at war, and there's all sorts of geopolitical yeah. risk around there. But you know, that could happen between the USA and China one day. Who knows? But you know, in the meantime, that's actually a pretty substantial population, isn't it? I mean, I would say if you take Amazon Australia seriously which some people do and i think the numbers are pretty titchy then you might find that some local market in taiwan actually is 10 times the size so it's all relative yeah, yeah, it? yeah. it's interesting well it's, it's you're trading off between you know you're going to have to learn a new system a new marketplace a new way of trading yeah so if you're going to invest the time in doing that you want to make sure there's a kind of the return is there and the competition is manageable so i think there's a difference between sort of 20 million in taiwan where you know, again, you've got two, two or three marketplaces in Taiwan that are completely domestic. You know, you can't, there's no synergies there. You can't say, I'm going to learn that in Taiwan and I'm going to do that in Korea because it doesn't exist. So obviously, you know, going to someone like Australia, like, you know, Amazon works in exactly the same way. So there's, there's like, you're going to be an expert from day one in terms of how to trade Amazon. So there's that sort of trade-off too. Of course, you know, you know we've completely admitted talking about Amazon Japan, right? Because Amazon Japan, last time I checked, is either number, I think the number three or number four Amazon market. It's yeah. pretty big. It's nearly it's always hard. exactly the same size as the UK, it seems to me. I mean, you know, to within, yeah. you know, a few dollars. Absolutely. You no, know, you're totally right. We are neglecting the obvious, <laughs> the easier win here. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I, I'm actually surprised. I mean, clearly translation and all of that, you know, you have to invest and partner up with someone. But, you know, we, we, we're actually working with a couple of Amazon agencies. You know, one of them actually based out of the UK, funny enough, whose whole business model is focused on helping people trade on Amazon Japan. You know, and I think there's definitely... It feels like there's more opportunity to be had there. Absolutely. If you talk about John from Rising Sun Commerce, is one of the, the UK-based guys that uh, is very big on helping people to, to sell an Amazon in Japan. His wife's Japanese, and he's lived out there for several years. And I think you're right. I think that's yeah, we're, we're getting very kind of into exotic stuff and neglecting the, the Amazon uh-huh. Japan, although it is that classic Japanese mixture that's kind of, they love Western products of a certain kind, but it's also very, very East Asian. It's that funny mix, isn't it? That Japanese kind of classic mix. And 
if you get it right and you you have some local guidance i think you're right that it makes a lot of sense and again to the point of people don't like barriers to entry like getting a bit of translation work done for me personally i guess i'm a son of a linguist so it's a bit different but still i think getting a bit of translation work done is a fraction of a fraction of the pain of moving stock around the world and if you think about the geography and that it's what two three weeks by boat from chinese factories to the amazon warehouses in japan that is so much less of a distance than it is to get to the west coast of, of america for example that it's definitely worth considering from a logistics point of view alone. Plus, I think that the, you know, the general sales tax around 10% instead of VAT of 20% or those getting slapped with uh, 20, 30 or whatever it is percentage from China to the USA these days, there's actually a great deal in its favour. I think you're absolutely right to, to flag it up. I'm kind of ashamed I didn't sort of shout about it 10 minutes ago. But uh, yeah, very thought-provoking sort of trip around the world with you uh, today. Thank you very much, Paul. So we ought to just wrap up with just coming back to what Merchant Spring does because obviously the more marketplaces you sell on the more data you've got to deal with and that can quickly become overwhelming and a kind of distraction from the core business as well which is even worse so what do you guys do at Merchant Spring to help solve that problem? Sure now we at Merchant Spring provide analytics and reporting for those marketplace sellers that sell across multiple markets platforms and countries and really, we do two things. We provide an aggregated view of your entire business across various metrics, everything from sales, advertising, profit, and operations. And secondly, we allow you to drill down and to quickly understand, you know, where are the risks and opportunities across your account? In other words, where, you know, if you have an hour today, where are you best off spending that hour? Or how are you best off spending that hour so that, you could move your business forward, you know, you know, and drive more sales either this week or next week. And profit, I should say, it's not always about sales too. So that's really, you know, our game is to try and make that easy for multi-marketplace sellers and also just save them a whole lot of, you know, administrative, boring, repetitive tasks. Take all of that, try and eliminate all of that and actually refocus the mindset on driving sales and profit-focused activity. Now that's it. That's it really in a nutshell. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, the more we've talked today about, you know, all these different marketplaces and all the possibilities, all the business model considerations you've got to think it through. For example, if you're going to sell, you know, apparel somewhere, there's a 20% return rate, then you've really got to think that one through and, and sit down maybe with your accountant. And that's stuff that you should be doing the CEO, whereas gathering a bunch of numbers is not really something you should be doing, is it? I think that that's a low-level task, whereas making sense of the numbers and making decision-making, that's the high-level task that we should focus on. So makes sense to me that, that you know, any kind of dashboard that we can use to, to speed that up is a great thing, a great win back of time. So for that, folks, we've got a special offer for Amazing FBA or 10K, 10K Collective Podcast listeners, which is if you go to amazingfba.com forward slash merchant spring, that's amazingfba.com forward slash merchant spring, then you can get a, a free trial. And then after that, for three months, you can get a 50% discount by using the code AMAZING which is a very generous offer. So, Paul, thank you for that, for doing that for the listeners. And the other thing that interests me is you've got a, a podcast yourself. So tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing with your podcast recently. Yeah, look, I'd love to take most of the credit. Actually, a lot of the hard work has been done by my uh, co-founder, James. But the podcast is called Marketplace Masters. And, you know, we are inviting, you know, mainly Amazon agencies and Amazon aggregators onto the podcast every single week. And we ask them really just one question, which is, you know, 
Forget all the marketing thing. You know, we know all the brochure on your website. We think you're great. We know all that. But really, 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 Cyber Weekend is not far away. You know, we, we're not having Prime Day in October this year. It's, you know, inventory is a challenge. What are you doing for your clients this week to put them in the best possible position for Q4? So we're really focusing on practical, what can we do? And basically, what are, what are the great ideas that we can steal and implement ourselves in order to make the most of Q4? And then sometimes it's about inventory management, it's about managing FBA, PPC ideas, listing optimization ideas. But, you know, we try and cover as many topics as possible and really so that listeners can walk away, even if it's just one little, maybe small, but gold nugget uh, that you can then try and and you know, help that make a difference to your profit performance during the course of Q4. So be sure to check that out at our, our YouTube channel. Yeah, so that's Marketplace Masters and it's YouTube rather than the podcast channels, is it? Or is it in both places? It's in a couple of different places, but the easiest one is just look for Merchant Spring on YouTube and you'll find the whole uh, series there. Amazing. Good. Well, that, that certainly I'm familiar with that trying to do interviewing, you know, people f- from agencies and aggregators and stuff. So that's... Uh, that sounds like a great mission to be on. So, Paul, it's been a real pleasure to talk this stuff through with you. And yeah, you have a real smorgasbord of, of marketplaces at your fingertips. They're very impressive knowledge, but also very interesting. And I think quite a few of them sound a bit exotic and, you know, an unnecessary sort of aggro, if you like, relative to the wind. But some of them are, you know, particularly in Europe, I think is are, are very over neglect, overlooked gems in terms, again, of profit right the lower the competition relative to the number of buyers then the the better it is for us as the sellers so really good uh, to have that inspiration to go and and check those things out it just remains for me to say many many thanks for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with the audience thank you michael it was it was great to be here and uh, look forward to the next one thanks for listening to the 10k collective podcast for six and seven figure amazon sellers I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.